My wife and I don't go to bed at the same time, which is really good because she's a TV sleeper, and I'm only a TV sleeper if I'm in like the recliner or on the couch, then I fall asleep while I watch TV. But if I'm in bed, I cannot fall asleep with the television on, and my wife can't really fall asleep without the TV on. So that's just one of the dynamics that, that we've had to work through. And so she regularly falls asleep. I have seen the entire series of Gilmore Girls just from like the five minutes I've come into the room to brush my teeth and then crawl into bed. That's how frequently she watches it. And I'm like, we all know what happens to Rory. We can move on uh, to another show at this point. She's like, no, no, we need to watch my Gilmore Girls. So she, she generally watches Gilmore Girls when she goes to sleep. But one night I came into the room and it was different and there was a movie on and I don't know what movie it was, but there was a movie on and there, were, there was this scene where children were screaming and the TV wasn't on that loud, but children are screaming. And my wife's a mother, and she's not awake. And I'm like, I'm a little troubled by this. Like, shouldn't, if any sound wakes you up, it'd be children screaming. But apparently, she's like, oh, no, children are screaming. I'm staying asleep, which is good to know, mental note. So she's watching that, and, and I go in, and I brush my teeth, and I come, and I crawl into bed, and, and hear these audible screams. And I turn off the TV, and I open a bottle of water. And she wakes up and is mad that I opened my bottle of water too loudly. Like the, the plastic cap made too loud of a noise for her that the cap of the water bottle woke her up. Never mind there was just a movie on with children who were screaming that she was sound asleep through that. But my water bottle being opened is what woke her up. And then she said, you swallow really loudly. I was incredulous. I was incredulous. I was trying to be quiet. I just wanted a drink of water before I went to sleep. And here we are now fighting over the fact that I opened my water too loudly and that I swallowed too loudly while she can sleep through a movie of screaming children, but she can't sleep through me opening a bottle of water and taking a drink. It's fascinating some of the things that we fight about. It really is. It's fascinating what, what some, of the, some of the tensions in our lives come from. And sometimes they're very benign, and sometimes they're very easy to work through. And sometimes the, the small annoyances of opening a bottle of water or somebody drinking too loudly can be moved past in just a couple of moments. And sometimes there are tensions in our lives that last for weeks and months in years, sometimes decades, and sometimes there are tensions in our lives that last until someone dies. And quite frankly, sometimes people still carry attention with somebody even after the death of someone. And one of the things that we have to acknowledge as being part of a community is just there's going to be tension. There's going to be tension anytime people are involved. And if you're an introvert, you might think, well, I have less tension, but you have tension sometimes even with yourself. We all have inner tension and inner turmoil that we fight, but if we're going to be in community, whether that's in community in church, whether that's in a relationship, whether that's in a marriage, whatever the case and the dynamic may be, where there are multiple people involved, there is tension. And this theme is nothing new. This is a theme that went back to the early church. 
And James addresses it in James chapter 4. So if you have your phones or your tablets or your Bibles with you, we'd encourage you to follow along with us this morning in the New Testament book of James. We're going to continue our look through the book of James. If, if you're new to Lakeside, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us here today or joining us on the stream. You can catch up with the entire look at the book of James on our website. That's available at lakeside-church.com. You can go to slash media once you're at lakeside-church.com, and there you'll find an archive of all of our services where you can watch along and catch up if you've missed anything. This morning we're going to continue our look, diving into James chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, where we read the first part of verse 1 and we read this, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Again, quarrels and fights are part of life. They're just part of life. And I would love to talk to you this morning like this isn't fresh in my life, but let me give you an inside glimpse of this morning at the Persley home. The past couple of days, my wife's best friend has been visiting with us, and it was a great time. Uh, Brooke had a great time with her best friend. It was, it was a fun chance for them to catch up. And they, she and her two children had joined us, and thank you for your prayers. And they, they left this morning, and I, I told Brooke, hey, we need to leave at 7.20. We need to leave at 7.20 so we can get there on time and we can get everything ready. Brooke was going to go pick somebody up for church. He's helping her out today in the Little's room. And I'm like, 7.20 is the time we need to leave. And apparently, 7.20, to some who aren't as punctual as others, means any time in the 7.20s is good. Uh, but for those of you who like to be on time places, you know there's a very big difference between 7.28 and 7.20. Uh, there's, a, there's a very big difference. And so we got in the car, and we left at 7.28. I'm not saying who's to blame, uh, but they're in the littles room today. And uh, so... <laughs> It's all right. She knows. All right. It's all right. So we left at 728, and that's all right, being patient. And, and we, live in, we live in Sturgeon Bay. And then we got to the bridge, and there was the slowest moving sailboat I've ever seen. And as I'm pulling up to the bridge, I see the light turn yellow. And part of me is like, I'm going to go evil Knievel on this. I'm just going to hit the gas. And then I remembered I drive a Chevy Equinox. So that's really not going to work well for anybody involved. I decided it probably wasn't worth the fines or whatever good story I'd have as a result of wrecking my equinox into the bridge. So I would just stop where the gate was dropping on the red light and wait for 10 minutes as the slowest moving sailboat in all of creation went past the bridge. My wife had Caleb on the radio hearing songs about praising Jesus and how great today was going to be, hearing those minutes of encouragement that they, I wanted to turn that radio off so bad. I was not in the frame of mind to hear a moment of encouragement. And I'm like, from here on out, the car's leaving at 720. And if you're not in it, you got to figure out your own way to get to church, which didn't really dawn on me. I've got an eight-year-old and a six-year-old. Like, it felt really good at the time, but what am I going to do? Leave an eight-year-old and a six-year-old home alone? Like, are they going to walk to church? I don't really know. But it felt good at the time to be like, yeah, this is my warrior cry. You're with us or you're figuring out yourself. There's no way to enforce that. I don't know what I was thinking. But at the moment, I was just really, really annoyed by the fact that if we would have left at 720, 
we wouldn't have had to wait for the world's slowest moving sailboat pass through the bay. I don't know for a fact, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say we wouldn't have hit the two red lights that we hit. I mean, Surgeon Bay has three lights that I'm aware of. We hit all three of them today, red. It was infuriating. That was my morning. That was my morning. So I would love to talk to you about the fact that, yeah, you're going to have quarrels, you're going to have annoyances, you're going to have arguments in your life, and I'd love to sit here like some sort of sage who's moved past all of this, and God's just like, see? See, Brian? Here you go. Now go live it. Go live it. And James asked the question, why are there quarrels? And why are there fights among you? Why is this? And then he answers that question. He's not just going to leave it out there. He answers that question in the last part of verse 1. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? See, most of the tension in our lives, most of the tension in our lives is a direct result to our own expectations. Most of the tension in our lives is a direct result to our own expectations. And when we have an expectation that is not met, whether it's because of something we do or whether it's because of something things somebody else does, when there's an expectation in our lives that goes unmet, that's where the tension starts. That's where the tension begins. And where the tension starts, that is where arguments start to grow. That's where fighting and quarreling starts to build. Because there is an expectation that we have within ourselves and either we or somebody else fails to meet the expectation that we've created in our, in our mind and in our hearts. And as a result of that expectation not being met, now it is ripe soil for fighting and arguments and quarrels to be built in that space. And then James goes on and he says this, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Can, can we just stop for a second as we look at this verse and say, let's just hope this murder thing is a wild example, right? Like James is saying, you, you desire and don't have, so you murder. Let's hope that's just a wild example, and he's not writing to the people in the first church. He murders. Like, I know the reason you've killed somebody is because you desire and you do not have. And let's, let's hope that's a wild example, but if it's not, how great is that? You might be scratching your head saying, what? But no, seriously, how great is that? That even when we're capable of the absolute worst in our lives, that God's never done with us that God's never done with us. So I don't know if this is just a wild example that James is talking about. Maybe he's talking about murder in the sense that Jesus was talking about murder when he said if you have, if you have anger in your heart that you carry from day to day, it's the same as you killing somebody. So maybe it's metaphoric, but maybe it's legit. And if it is, how great is our God? That in the midst of the worst that humanity has to offer, God still looks at us and he still loves us and he still desires a relationship with us. He still desires to offer us grace and forgiveness and mercy through his son, Jesus. And that God's not done with us. And you might believe a lie to yourself because of your past. You might continue to relive the worst of the worst and it might haunt you like a highlight reel that you never want to encounter and yet you can't shake it. 
And sometimes in the middle of the night, those intrusive thoughts just come and they plague your mind and they just remind you of all of your failures and all your shortcomings. And you start to wonder and you start to believe, God, how could you ever want anything to do with me? God, you, you can't accomplish anything in my life. You don't even want me because of what I've done and nothing could be further from the truth. Our God is a God of grace and forgiveness and mercy. And yes, there are consequences for our actions, but you are never too far gone for God to still love you and still desire you. And he says, you do not, you, you desire and don't have, so you murder, you covet, and can't obtain, so you fight, and you quarrel. You do not have, because you do not ask. He says, you want, you want something, and you don't have it. And because you don't have what you want, what do you do? You go and you fight. That's what you do. You want something, you don't have it, so you fight. You murder, you quarrel, you fight. And the reason you don't have it is because you don't ask. And I wonder, what is, what is this peace in our lives? What are these expectations that all of us are carrying in our lives, all the desires that we have, that we are holding on to, that are, that are making the soil of our hearts ripe for contentment and anger and quarreling and fighting. What are those things in our lives that we want and we don't have and so the soil is ripe for anger and fighting? And is it that we don't have the very things we want because we've simply failed to ask God for them? And all the source of frustration and bitterness and anger and fighting that we are carrying in our hearts, is all of that there just because we simply haven't asked? So right now, I just want to pause. And I don't know what, what it is for you. But I know you're human, and I know you have expectations, and I know you have desires. And so in the quietness of this moment, I just want to invite you, maybe for the very first time, in the quietness of this moment, in the quietness of your heart, just to ask God for that. And maybe this will be the hundredth time you've done so today because this is a discipline in your life and prayer is a very big discipline and this is something you do daily. Then I'd invite you just use this moment to be that time for you today, to just ask God again. But maybe this will be the very first time. And so we're just going to be quiet right now. And in the quietness of this moment, I just want to invite you to pour out your heart to God and to ask him for what it is you desire. Amen. Now James gives us another part of this dynamic in verse 3 when he writes this, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. Spend it on your passions. See, maybe the case is you have that desire in your heart and maybe it's something that you've asked God for over and over and over again and it seems like there's always a roadblock. It seems like the answer to that prayer is always no and you can't figure out and you can't understand, God, why wouldn't you give me this? And James says maybe the reason that God's answering no is because you don't have the right motives. 
you don't have the right outlook. You're asking God for something, but, but you're asking for God something only because of selfish ambition. He goes on in verse 4, and he says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He says, your hearts aren't true. Your hearts aren't true. And he introduces this dynamic of somebody who's more concerned about being accepted and loved by everybody that they encounter than they are concerned about bringing honor and glory and pleasure to God. And he draws this distinction. He says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. Here's the reality, that that following Jesus is signing up for a life of tension. Following Jesus is signing up for a life of tension. Because there are going to be a number of things that following Jesus requires of us that other people are not going to understand. And sometimes we scratch our heads and we're like, well, what's wrong with them? Meanwhile, we've got to understand they're scratching their heads and saying, well, what's wrong with them the whole time? Because our outlooks are completely different. And Jesus says, Jesus told us that we should expect this. He said, the world hated me first. And we look at the message of Jesus and we see there's so much that is appealing about the message of Jesus. But remember at the core what the gospel message is, especially in the day and age in which we live. And the gospel message never changes, but the society and the culture in which we live where everybody's perfect and everybody's great and we just have to blindly accept everybody, what's the message of the gospel? The message of the gospel is this, you're not okay. There's something wrong with you. It doesn't get more countercultural than that right now. The message of the gospel says you aren't enough and you aren't okay, but thank God Jesus is. And he came so that we would be enough and that we could be okay through what he accomplished on our behalf. And we in and of ourselves can never measure up. But God in his goodness to us, while we never deserved it, measured up for us. And you may scratch your head and you might think, well, why when the message of Jesus is full of love, would people ever reject that notion? And the answer is because it doesn't get more countercultural than that. That we have to tell people, You're not enough in and of yourself. You must rely on Jesus. That is our hope. And that's the message of the gospel. And then James goes on and he says this, Or do you suppose it is is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit, that he is made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Here's the reality. God wants all of you. God wants all of you. He doesn't want a segment. He doesn't want a part. He doesn't want the segment of your life that you, you just kind of divide neatly and nicely and say, well, that's the spiritual aspect of me and everything else, every other part of me. I can do whatever I want. No, 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 no. God wants every aspect of you. God wants all of you. He yearns jealously. He learns, yearns jealously. And God opposes the proud. God hates pride. Scripture throughout, throughout Scripture, we see this picture, and we are told very directly that God abhors pride. God despises it, and he hates it. And you might wonder to yourself, well, why is that? Why does God hate pride so much? And then remember what pride does. Pride inflates self. 
Pride makes us think that we can do it, that we're enough. The subtle, the subtle danger of pride is that it tells us we don't need God, that we're responsible, that we're capable, that we've done it. And the more we reflect on what we've accomplished, the less our dependency upon God is. Forgetting all the while that everything we've been able to do is a direct result of God's goodness. That everything we've been able to do is a direct result of God allowing us and working and giving us gifts in order to accomplish it. And now we get to this section, which we could spend a month just on these verses alone. And I'm just going to encourage you, if you don't right now have a, have a Bible reading plan, if you're not currently engaging with Scripture throughout the week, I'm, just, I'm challenging you for this next week, take this section of Scripture that we're about to look at from James 4, 7 to 10, and for the next week, just read these verses every day, meditate on them, and start to pull them apart, start to process them, start to think through them, start to ask questions based on your own life about this. We could spend a month just on these verses that we're about to read and just, just tearing them apart. Uh, we're not going to do that, but I'd encourage you over the course of the next week, if you don't have a Bible plan you're already doing, really just, just take the time to read these verses over and over and over again and really analyze your life as a result of them. Here they are, uh, verses 7 to 10, we read this. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. I mean, you read that, and you might be like, wow, that sounds like some Old Testament stuff. But, but this, is, this is what James tells us that we need to do in our approach to God, that we are to submit, that we are to resist, that we are to draw near, that we are to cleanse, that we are to mourn, and we are to humble ourselves. And that's not a fun list. That's not a fun list. And yet, what we're told is that a great result is promised. A great result is promised if we will follow this recipe. To submit, to resist the devil, to draw near to God and God will draw near to us, to cleanse, to mourn, to be humble. This is what God desires. And there are areas in this list for all of us, whether you're a new follower of Jesus or whether you've been following Jesus for over 50 years, there is, a, there is an element of this list to all of us that's challenging. And the secret is the closer you grow to God, the, the more you realize you have further and further to go. So you read this list and while it's not fun, there is a great, a great reward that is promised. We'll just follow the recipe. I hate tomatoes. I know people eat tomato sandwiches. 
like I'd, I'd rather fast. Like there's no, that sounds disgusting to me. People are like, oh, there's nothing like you get a big old tomato, you put it between two pieces of bread, and yeah, just give me the bread. I'm good. I don't, why ruin good bread? I don't understand it. But the reality is, I love pretty much everything tomatoes make. I love salsa. I love marinara sauce. I love pizza sauce. I love spaghetti sauce. And they're all different. You might not think that, but they're all different. They're all different. I love generally everything tomatoes, ketchup. I love everything tomatoes make. But I hate the tomato. You might not like the idea of submitting. You might not like the idea of resisting. You might not like the idea of what it takes to draw near to God. You might not like the idea, if you're being honest, to cleanse yourself. You might not like the idea to mourn. And you might not like the idea of becoming humble. But the end result, the end result is worth it. That is promised to us we will follow God's plan and his purpose. James continues, he writes, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, how do we put this into practice? Let me give you a couple real easy steps. First is this. Don't speak evil against fellow Christians. Don't speak evil against fellow Christians. There's a time to confront. And when you confront, follow the biblical mandate for that. So when you confront, first you go to that person individually. You don't blog about them. You don't tweet about them. You don't send an email blast to everybody. You go to that person one-on-one and you confront them. And if that doesn't work, then you take some respected spiritual leaders with you and you inform them of the situation and you take them that, that hopefully they will be able to help the person realize what's going on in their lives. Hopefully the group of you will be able to, to get the person to realize that their life is out of balance. But never in Scripture are we given a picture that it's, it's time to blast somebody. Put them on blast. Don't make it like everybody's business. Don't drop the juicy tidbits in the prayer update, right? Like, don't do that. Just, just go to that person. Go to that person individually. So, so one of the steps that we need to be really careful that we take, especially in the day and age where everything is, is put out on social media, is just let's make sure that we're not people who are speaking badly about uh, fellow Christians. And remember the advice that, that your, your grandma gave you sometimes, or your parents, uh, if you have nothing nice to say, don't say anything at all. Sometimes it's best just to say nothing. Don't speak evil against one another. This doesn't mean we sweep every problem under the rug, just the opposite. We go and we confront, but we do so in a way that can bring about that can bring about life change, it can bring about repentance, it can bring about forgiveness, it can bring about restoration. And that's the goal. That people are restored. That people realize that there are things in their lives that, that need to look more like Jesus. 
and less like their life currently looks. That's always the end result, and that's always the goal. And sometimes people can lose sight of that because it, it becomes what? A quarrel, an argument, a fight. And that's never the intent. And our goal should always be to bring about life change. And then we're introduced to this next dynamic that James writes about in verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For it is a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. While we're on the topic of what to say and how to say it and who to say it to, and while we're on the topic of the fact that we're going to fight just because we're human and because there are things that, that we have expectations for that don't become reality and we live in community, while we're on the topic of all this, and sometimes we don't have those things because we don't ask, and sometimes we don't have those things because God wants us to have something else, while we're on the topic of all of this tension, James says, let's remember something. Life is temporary. It's incredibly short. And I remember back in fifth grade, staring at the clock and looking at the seconds, feel like eternity as I was just waiting for the social studies class to end so that the bell would ring so that we could go out to recess. And every second felt like an eternity. And now I look back and I'm 38 years old and the last decade of my life feels like one of those seconds in the fifth grade class where I was just waiting for the bell to ring. Our lives are incredibly short. So what fight are you holding on to right now? That in the grand scheme, you just need to let go of. What tension and what turmoil are you gripping? That's a result of expectations that maybe it's not the other person's fault at all. Maybe it's because you've never even asked God. Or maybe you've asked God and God said no because God has a greater plan and desire for your heart. That your heart would be fully in line with the heart of God. And not with, with something else that you're chasing after that doesn't, that doesn't bring you closer to Jesus, but brings you closer to things of this world that ultimately don't even matter. And maybe the reason you don't have what you desperately want is because God in his loving mercy for you is putting a roadblock in your life. But rather than acknowledge that and see that because there is a lack of submission with your relationship with God, there's a lack of resistance to the devil, there's a lack of mourning, there's a lack of humility, there's a lack of all of these things. You just keep hitting that roadblock and it's making you enraged and you're angry and you want to fight somebody. Maybe God has something different entirely planned. 
Because God wants all of you. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. And all such boasting is evil. We must realize that all of life is at the dependency of God. Every breath we take is a gift. Every breath we take. And then James wraps up this chapter with this. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Oh, great. So now sin just isn't a list of things I have to avoid. But sin can also be my inaction. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it also sins. I got news for you. You're all in trouble. Because the standard just got that much harder. I mean, the standard's always been perfection, and we never measure up. But the Pharisees would go back to the Testament law, and they would say, well, I can check off this one, and check off this one, and check off this one, and check off this one. Their heart was never in the right place, and they missed it the whole time. But now, it's not an issue if we can check things off. Now it's an issue that God raises the stakes, and He says, whoever does the good thing they want to do, has to do it. They sin. And the hope, the hope for us is that it's never been about us. Because we can. But God does and God did. And so Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, humbled himself and came to this world. He died on a cross so that we could experience life forever with Him. Because the price of sin is death. So God Himself paid that price. And there are consequences for our actions. So we too will still die, but we can experience life after death through what Jesus accomplished on our behalf. Not because God changed his standard, but Scripture tells us God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become right with God. That's the message of Jesus. That's the hope. And if we will live our lives following after Him, we will live in a world of tension. We will be misunderstood. There will be things we desire that God in His loving mercy will put roadblocks in our way that we will never experience and we will never be given. we will experience the greatest gift that we ever could in salvation. 
and in eternity with our Creator. That is the hope that we have. And as people who made the decision to follow Jesus, let's make sure that that hope is central and forefront in our lives. And it drives everything we do. And it shapes us to the core. God, I pray. I pray for the person who's never fully surrendered their life to you. And I pray today would be the day they stop running. I pray today would be the day they stop fighting it. I pray today they would experience your mercy and grace. that they would make a decision to follow you. God, I pray for the person who has already made that decision and who's living in constant tension and constant turmoil. And I pray, God, they would just assess the life you've called us to. And they would realize that following you means there's going to be a segment of people who hates them and doesn't understand them. And that wouldn't hold them back. I pray for the person who doesn't have what, what they so desperately desire. And it's because they've never asked. And God, I pray that they would discover the, just the incredible gift of prayer. And it would become a dependency in their life. And for the person who's already discovered that God and who's asking over and over and over again and just hitting the roadblock, I pray in your loving mercy you'd reveal to them what you desire for their lives. Take our lives, God, and use them for your glory, we ask in your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.